It's time for Bright Ideas. An eclectic conversation on the issues impacting our markets and our world. Featuring Bright Thinkers. Brought to you by the Structured Finance Association in Washington, D.C. Here's your host, Michael Bright. Good morning, everybody. Today is uh, July 21st, 2020. We're here with the next edition of the Structured Finance Association's bi-weekly podcast. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by a great friend of mine and one of the truly most outstanding individuals in Washington, D.C., Julia Gordon. Julia is president of the National Community Stabilization Trust. She is a very well-known thought leader inside of Washington. She's highly respected all across the aisle and is one of the few people who, whatever question you have, she's probably already thought about it and has a thoughtful answer for you. So I rely on her quite a bit for counsel. I have done since I moved to D.C. 10 years ago, and we continue to always seek her advice and thoughts um, as an organization here at SFA. I'm really pleased that she can join us this morning to talk a little bit about uh, how COVID is impacting low-income communities, how it's impacting homeowners, you know, what the implications of this thing are. We all know that the unemployment rate is obviously spiked and there's a lot of folks living paycheck to paycheck and it's really a difficult time, but Julia is very good at putting both data and color on these types of situations so that we can really get a, a very tangible feel for how things are actually going. So, Julia, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. And for everybody listening, please know that all of the nice things that Michael said about me, uh, I would say about him. And he has been a real leader, not only in thought leadership around housing finance, but he is now leading in the industry around issues that have to do with race and diversity at a time where these issues are uppermost in everybody's mind. So I appreciate, um, you know, being, being part of your kitchen cabinet, so to speak, and I'm delighted to talk today about what's happening in uh, housing and, and mortgage during this time. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much for those kind words. Yes, we have plenty going on. Um, why don't we start, Julia, by just, if you could give us just a, the kind of the overview of the National Community Stabilization Trust, you know, what it does, what type of communities you interact with, that sort of thing, and then we'll dive into some of the stuff that you're seeing on the ground. Sure. Our organization was created in 2008 as a response to the financial crisis. What we were seeing at that time was a huge glut of foreclosures, and we were seeing a lot of blight in neighborhoods being caused by vacant and abandoned homes. Our organization was created as something of a utility. We developed a technology platform that enabled financial institutions with REO to sell those properties to community-based organizations working to rehab those properties and put them back into productive use in their communities. Over the past 11 years, We've facilitated the transfer of approximately 27,000 properties that have been put back into productive use, mostly for low and moderate income home ownership. We work in distressed neighborhoods with lower home values. We are mostly working in a space under the United States median home value, and we 
only work with properties that do require some rehab. Um, if a property is in great shape, that property should go directly to a homeowner and not, not be going through our process. In addition to trying to prevent blight and promote affordable homeownership in these neighborhoods, our organization also works on research and policy related to the transactional work we're doing. Yeah, wonderful. And I mean, it's such, a, it's such an important mission because these communities that you live and work in every day feels like as soon as there's any sort of economic stuff, you know, every property goes one of two directions. It either can either turn into blight, it can turn into, you know, disrepair, or it's an investment opportunity for some giant fund that wants to buy it and put up a huge condo or turn it into rentals. And there's, of course, there's nothing, I don't have anything inherently wrong with condominiums or, or rentals, but some of these communities, you know, the, the folks that live there care deeply about the community and they want to live and stay in their community and they and their friends and their family are their support network and so um to have an organization that is there making sure that these homes can stay for homeowners in the community and be livable and in good condition and the schools can stay in good condition i mean it's such an important mission i imagine that you face challenges from all the sides of that when you see uh these communities in that regard we believe in homeownership because homeownership helps in both directions. You know, home ownership can help a community come out of a downward spiral. And home ownership can also provide a bulwark against displacement if a community starts to gentrify or get more expensive quickly. And so, you know, we don't, we don't see a downside to home ownership as long as uh, families are able to acquire mortgages that are safe and sustainable. Um, which, of course, is what we were missing 12 years ago. But, you know, t- today is the anniversary of the Dodd-Frank Act, the 10-year anniversary. And right? one yeah. of the results of the Dodd-Frank Act is that we see much safer mortgage lending out there now, um, which helps me be even more bullish on home ownership for all of these communities. Yeah, certainly the governance of a lot of lending has, has greatly improved in the past 10 years. We'll have you back on to talk about governance in the PLS sector, uh, or maybe we'll get to it later today, but it's something that we're very focused on here as well. And I do, I definitely agree that to having minimum standards and all of these things have been, have been really an important piece of making sure that the homeownership drive that we have in this country stays um, in the right, you know, kind of place. Now, you, you mentioned, so speaking of Dodd-Frank, speaking of the financial crisis, you guys have been around since 2008. I do think people are drawing parallels between this COVID uh, crisis and the financial crisis. For me, I have trouble seeing the parallels in the sense just that like 2008, if you were on a, a trading desk, it was this very acute, bizarre, you know, couldn't even get liquidity in treasuries or any type of security. And it felt like the world was falling and there was no end and everybody was levered and it was just gonna take forever to get out of. This is, this is obviously a health related crisis and so on, on, on the one hand, there's, there's some aspect of it that feels maybe not as scary. However, that's not true because um, even in the worst um, unemployment weeks during the financial crisis, you're talking about 600, 700, 800,000 uh, or in that range. I think 680 was maybe one of the high friends. Weekly claims. This, this time we're, I mean, we had 6 million, 4.5 million, 3 million it, it sequentially in terms of the weekly claims. So, this crisis is 
it's causing a lot of pain that's in some ways different than the financial crisis of 2008. In the communities that you work with and in the work that you do with your organization, you know, how would you describe this downturn relative to the 2008-2009 experience? Well, clearly, as you've stated, the downturn is caused by a very different reason. The financial crisis was triggered by a crisis in mortgage um, and by, you know, poorly underwritten mortgages and by a, you know, a Wall Street superstructure that um, got out of hand. And ultimately, the housing market itself led us into the recession. And then the recession itself caused something of a second wave of foreclosures due to high unemployment and the like. This crisis is, of course, being caused by a global pandemic, but a lot of the effects will be the same unless we take steps to to make sure the outcomes are different. One thing that is always the same, no matter what kind of crisis you have, you can be sure that communities of color and neighborhoods where you have a lot of lower income people living, you can be sure they will be hit first, last, and worst. And we see that now doubled down on because of the health effects of this crisis. So not only is the economic recession hitting those places worse, but they are experiencing more illness and more death. Um, And so right now, even though I think for, for many people listening, the economic part of this crisis may feel a little bit more remote than than it did the last time, it in some ways is far worse in many communities. And I think everybody's hopes early on that this would be a V-shaped recovery and this would just be a blip. I I hope everybody's figured out that's not how this is working. Um, And we'll have to have a whole different podcast to talk about what could have been done differently to prevent where we are now, but we are where we are now. So the question that we want to talk about on this call is, you know, what, what is the effect on housing, home ownership, these communities? And the good news is we learned lots of great lessons from the last crisis and put a lot of building blocks in place to make the mortgage market more able to respond to a situation like this. The fact that we have as an industry come to a shared conclusion that keeping people in their homes is always the best first choice and that if for some reason people can't stay in their homes, that alternatives to foreclosure are better than foreclosure. You know, the the fact that we have a shared view on this is incredibly important for how we'll get through this. And and Um, is the direct outgrowth of the experience of 2008, 2009. Absolutely. We had to to hoe our way through that muck to build the infrastructure that could deal with something like this, to build some standards across the board. I mean, servicers in the mortgage space went from, you know, being monthly paycheck collectors and passwords of money to, you know, really, at least we hope and the idea is really being able to help solve problems when they arise. And I think that that probably can be directly traced to both the the financial crisis and the Dodd-Frank and all the efforts that we did back then. Right. And, you know, we can talk more about exactly how services are executing during this time um, where, you know, we we may be falling short of perfection. But what's important is as soon as we saw this coming, 
we had the CARES Act come through. Even before the CARES Act, there were a number of servicers starting to use the forbearance tool, which is a tool that was developed during the last crisis. And having the CARES Act, you know, as an act of Congress come in and say, okay, for federally backed mortgages, you can get a forbearance without complicated paperwork, without, you know, all of the hoops that we made folks jump through the last time around. That was really a game changer. In essence, what we were able to do is something everybody wants to do during a crisis on everything. We got to push the pause button. It's been remarkably effective. Now, I should say, you know, we now have, you know, somewhat over 4 million mortgages in forbearance. We do have a number of other mortgages. I don't know the exact numbers, probably somewhere between half a million and a million or so of folks who have gone delinquent without getting a forbearance. And that's a problem that we have to solve for, you know, which we can talk about. But the fact that we've been able to put these forbearances out there and that the CARES Act was generous in the length of time for the forbearance so that we could focus on executing now on forbearances and start to get ready for what happens when people come out of forbearance, that's been unbelievably useful. And, and you know, I, I think we have to not only commend Congress for that, but the whole industry for jumping into this. You know, I will say a couple of people here and there whispered the word moral hazard every now and again um, in the first few weeks of this. But honestly, I have not heard much of that. And that's pretty good because when you look at who's actually gotten the forbearances and what's happening, I, I don't think we see an enormous amount of gaming out there. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't know if this is a function of partisanship, meaning like, you know, what parties controls the White House and so things are different, or if it's the fact that this is a health-driven crisis, but we could spend a lot of time analyzing those threats. But the point is, um, a lot has been done, and um, there's more to be done, but it's good that, you know, as you say, this moral hazard concern is not really... It really held us back in 2008, right. 2009, and it was right. a, big, uh, a, big, a big threat. So, all right, so the, several things you said there that I think may be worth unpacking. So three jump out. The first is we want to get back to talking about the, the communities that are left behind. Second, we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, servicing and, um, you know, how the servicing community is responding to these communities in your view and what you're seeing. And then CARES Act 1.0, but then all the other CARES Act stuff that's going on. So... The communities that are left behind. So this is the, as always, communities of color um, and lower income communities is so, so, so frustrating. What I find potentially even more frustrating, and you may share this, is that our barometer for success has somehow become the stock market. And that is the signal that we're using to decide whether or not things are working. But not that many, a surprisingly small share of um, Americans actually own stock. So it really is not the right barometer. And um, I think it's almost doubly dangerous because what ends up happening is we get the sense of complacency that says, oh, look, everything's fine. Of course, we still have this virus and we have to deal with that. But 
you know, if we're using if we're using equity markets and home prices or whatever or whatever as our asset prices as our barometer, it looks like we can say, okay, it was a it is a V-shaped recovery. Let's all move on. But the communities you're working with, that, that is not the reality, right? I mean, I mean that is just not what they're experiencing. So can you tell us a little, put some real tangible color around um, what it, these communities are experiencing, so that we can make sure we're amplifying this message together that. Um, there are, there are many, many, many Americans that are completely falling through the cracks that you can't just see it from like stock market or something along those lines. Well, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting for, for, an, for, for the real estate industry, for an industry whose mantra has always been location, location, location. It's often frustrating to me when policy gets made based on national averages and medians, <laughs> let alone based on how the stock market is doing. Right. Um, because, you know, we ha- yes, we have had a uh, stunningly successful housing market for the last decade if you're just looking at increases in home values. But that's very neighborhood specific. There are still plenty of communities in this country where people are still underwater on their mortgages, where home values have never recovered where the housing market doesn't work particularly well, where you're still dealing with mostly distressed comps. And I, those places often get left out of the conversation or frankly, almost always get left out of the conversation. Sure. And of course, you know, a lot of these communities are struggling with all kinds of effects of disinvestment. It's not just the housing market. These things all go hand in hand. You know, look, home values plus property tax equals how are your schools and the levels of home ownership in different places translate into what other kinds of economic investment and business activity you see in those places. So, you know, it's always important to, to note that there's, there tends not to be one silver bullet, but there is an interrelationship among all of the aspects that make up any particular neighborhood, such that if you can interrupt something in a good way, it can help it can help pull the other things up if you're working on all of them at the same time. That's what makes community development work really hard is a lot of people have to row in the same direction, and most of the people doing that rowing are under resourced and undercapitalized. And, you know, as you noted, most of this happens out of view of the national media and national economic conversations. It happens under the radar screen. I mean, what's happening now in these neighborhoods is catastrophic. I cannot emphasize that enough. That is what I would emphasize, if you could, because I do think it's, it's doubly painful to see not, not that I'm wishing for stock markets to go down, okay? Like, absolutely, of course we're not. But um, it's it's doubly painful to know that that is taking place and that uh, this idea that national home prices are going up and that national metrics are improving um, and that that's going to drive our response where we know that these certain communities are getting hit really hard and are going in the complete wrong direction. We had Marco Davis of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. We were talking about the impact of COVID on Hispanic communities. And, you know, these are the folks that are building our buildings, building our streets, building the infrastructure that makes the country run. And you can't socially distance while doing that. 
okay? And um, so they're getting crushed by this uh, virus. Um, it, and so we need to make policy focused on these communities, not policy focused on some sort of national average benchmark, as, as, you know, as you say, and, and as, as I'm trying to argue here, it needs to be focused on those that are hit the hardest. And it's a, it's a constant, you're always going to have, well, there's, there's wealth inequality exists in the society, exists in the world, but we should always be fighting against that. And we need to be cognizant that when crisis hits, that's the time that you really need to be focusing on the communities that are getting hit the hardest. So how did you score us right now and, and tell us what do we want to deliver as a message to our members and the policymakers about what's going on in these communities? I think the most important message is that, you know, if, if we've learned nothing else from this pandemic, we've learned that we are all interconnected. When you end up in the hospital with COVID, you are being tended to by not just doctors and nurses, but maintenance workers and food workers and all of those folks, we are all interconnected. So to the extent we're one big chain of people, we are only as strong as our weakest links. And it is right to focus policy, not on a median, but on a place where people are suffering the most, where people need the most assistance. I mean, you know, the religious among us could could go off and talk about, you know, as as you treat the least of us, right? So I have seen, I think partly because this, the pandemic and the recession then um, had this added layer of the protests that erupted after uh, the murder of George Floyd um, and, you know, the many other things everybody's now been paying attention to, we have had this overlay on all of this of the unsolved uh, sort of, you know, original sin of our country, the, the, you know, the ways in which we continue to discriminate against the black community. And thinking about all of these things together, I am hoping is starting to bring attention to communities that for years I've found it's a little hard to get anybody's attention on. So, you know, you don't want to say there's a silver lining to something that's absolutely so awful, but it is a positive and encouraging development, in my opinion, that we are starting to pay more attention to these issues, um, you know, more across the board. And I love the fact that you've been um, initiating a lot of conversations about this. That's really important and something that did not happen in this sector before. Yeah. And, and not only are we connected, but demographics are an actual thing, right? I mean, this is just, we, we know how the country is evolving and, and changing and growing. And this, this is what's contributed to American greatness. And um, we need to take care of all these communities together. And yes, well, we could do an entire podcast on racism and the original sin, and we're doing those now. But um, it's terrible to watch it play out with the pandemic, and it's really doubly terrible if policymakers are looking at broad benchmarks as opposed to the least among us, as you say. Okay, but let's talk about policymakers here for a second. So, so the CARES Act had, I think, with three iterations of it, we're working on on another. Um, you know, how how do you grade it? What do you think it's done? 
well and what would you be advocating for in another package if you get one in August? Well, so I'm going to stick mostly to to housing because that's what I do. Although I will say that I, I frankly think that we would be insane not to extend the enhanced unemployment benefits, which I, I think are what has kept us afloat to the extent we've been afloat. You know, for for all of these issues, when we talk about whether it's homeowners and their mortgages or or tenants and their rent payments, the best, easiest, most efficient way to keep these systems functioning well is for the people to continue to have income so that they can continue to pay whatever it is. You know, if you're a tenant and you're paying your rent, you're a homeowner and you're paying your mortgage, that's what's going to have the fewest ripple effects up the chain, right? So that makes so much sense. And I hope, you know, before this next package passes, everybody figures that out. I also genuinely hope people figure out that the problem here is people who don't have a paycheck. So the payroll tax cut is not the equivalent of what we've been doing on the unemployment side. Well, but we want everybody to go go back to work and service industry. And it's kind of like, I'm not so sure I want to force somebody with COVID to be cooking the takeout food that my family and I are eating. Like I'd rather they get unemployment and stay home and get better. <laughs> like I mean, there's that, and, you know, look, you could also say that our country is somewhat behind other advanced countries in the way we focus on unemployment rather than just maintaining income. You know, you can get away from a lot of these silly debates if you, if you think about it that way. But anyway, leaving that aside, let's go to housing. We have to accomplish a couple of things really quickly. First, on the rental side, we are facing a cliff. Um, the cliff is coming in about a week when the um, multifamily forbearances uh, expire because the eviction protection expires along with that. And you've also seen uh, eviction moratoria expire in lots of municipalities and states around the country that had enacted them at the beginning here. Um, it is... It is absolutely critical that not only that renters be able to stay in their home in the middle of a pandemic where you, you know, shouldn't be just out with other people, but there is no, no reason for this crisis to have to happen. We have the means to provide, you know, both these income supports that we talked about and to provide additional rental assistance if needed. And, the package that's being contemplated on the Hill now of rental assistance, I think is just absolutely a top priority. Absolutely a top priority. We we know that even one eviction can change a family's trajectory for the worse. You know, I hope everybody listening has read the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond. If you haven't, it's one of the most compulsively readable nonfiction books you'll ever read but it also really lays out this case. Eviction is not just a symptom of poverty. Eviction can cause poverty. And the most important thing for us to do now in this situation that we're in is, you know, first cause no new harm, right? So we've got to pass some kind of rental assistance. On the mortgage side, we did the right thing with the forbearances and it is mostly working well with some exceptions that I can talk about. But we, 
we do need to do a few other things. First, we, we have to deal with the people who have gone delinquent and not gotten a forbearance. Um, we don't know exactly why. There are lots of folks studying this right now, but there are a variety of reasons that we hear. A lot of people maintain a mistrust in the mortgage servicing industry and don't believe that they're going to get any help from a servicer that isn't going to hurt them more. There are incorrect rumors about the effect of a forbearance on your credit score, and that's driving some behavior. There were the, there were the early requests coming from some servicers about what, what people have come to call the lump sum repayment of forbearance that completely spooked everybody. And by the way, that was an you know, unnecessary exercise. We could have done without that. And it, we have to make crystal clear right now that nobody is going to be required to do any kind of you know, lump sum repayment. But whatever, for all of these reasons, and sometimes just because it can be hard to get a hold of a servicer or maybe a servicer thinks they have a good online presence, but the person right now isn't having access to that for whatever reason, I do think it would be very useful for us to enable forbearances to kick in automatically when somebody goes 60 days delinquent. We have seen instances of people being put into forbearances who don't know they're in forbearance and don't need a forbearance, and then that can be a real obstacle when it comes to, say, wanting to do a refi. Mm. But really, the harm that's going to be done is to the people who should have gotten a forbearance because they were COVID-affected, either in their health or in their employment, and they did not get that. So I, I, I think it would be useful for us to do that by statute because it's very hard in the servicing industry to just take these things on yourself. A lot of servicers are thinking about automatic forbearances for lots mm. of people that make sense, but it's absolutely much easier to do if it's an industry standard. You know, it also was a problem that the CARES Act only applied to federally backed mortgages. Now, most of the servicers I've been talking to are trying to treat all of their servicing the same. And again, I think that's going far better than it would have had we not gone through the financial crisis last decade. But it would be very useful to include that in a statute, to have a safe harbor from investor lawsuits so that servicers can feel confident and so that we can leverage the very good policies that we've seen now come out of the government-backed channels. You know, most recently we saw a whole new suite of modifications come out of FHA. That's terrific. But we need to make sure that servicers are able to use these um, for all of their mortgages. Those, those are some things I'm going to look for in this new bill. Yep. Sounds like the message is we had a very rapid and largely helpful response and that is good but a lot of that stuff is going to end um i do think that there are a lot of folks who think or have been thinking that you know this thing was going to be a, a, a spike and we're going to flatten that curve and then once we flatten the curve then this is just kind of a bad cold and it's time to move on and we we had an epidemiologist on to talk about that it's most 
physicians don't seem to think that that's the way this is going to play out. So in my view, it's very important that we're planning for this thing to be another, let's say, year. hope it's not. But that this is going to be a rolling series of of kicks to um, communities that can least uh, afford to deal with it. So you have to kind of keep focusing on that. So the rental assistance, unemployment assistance, and making clear we have uniform standards of forbearance for everybody so that we lean a little more in the automatic space as opposed to um, trying to make it too hard and folks get left behind. So those sound like three pretty good prongs for this next bill. So let's say we get some of this because it probably we will get some, um, not, maybe not all. I don't know how silly the debates are going to get over the next few weeks, but probably silly. Let's end on this kind of question. The trajectory that we're on now, Julia, does this end in millions of foreclosures and evictions? Because I certainly hope not. But if the ball keeps rolling in the direction it's rolling, where are we headed? Well, I certainly hope not also. And I really don't think we will end up with millions of foreclosures. That doesn't mean I don't think millions of people aren't at risk of losing their home ownership. I think we will do a much, I'm hoping we will do a much better job on modifications and on keeping people in their homes. The way we handle the post-forbearance transition is going to be critical and needs, you know, based on some of the servicing practices I'm looking into, there's a lot of good intention out there right now, but we really need to sharpen up the execution on that. Um, so that we're ready for those loans rolling back out of forbearance, you know, either into a reperforming status or into a mod. I am hoping that's going to take care of a lot of people. But there is no way that we don't have a situation where many, many people are going to be out of work for a long time. We're not going to bounce back to the employment levels, you know, of five months ago all that quickly And so we have to be very mindful of two things. Both we have to be mindful about how we create paths for people who need to to exit that home ownership with as minimal as possible an effect on their credit scores, on their both physical and emotional health, and, you know, on their communities. Thus... Second thing we have to do if we start to see a number of homes needing to change ownership is it's really important to continue to have affordable home ownership available. And we already see that one of the biggest barriers to people affording homes is not the cost of the credit per se. Obviously, we're at historic lows in terms of a mortgage, even if you are getting a higher rate mortgage, say, but the cost of the home itself because of the shortage of inventory in that affordable space is is a real problem. And you want to not see that problem made worse by investors who are able to who, who are able to acquire these properties before they are available to the home buying public. We've seen a lot of that. We saw that coming out of the financial crisis where, you know, some estimates suggest that about half of all the foreclosures 
ended up in a situation where an investor bought that home and did not return it to home ownership status. You know, investors always come in at the bottom of the market, and that's what helps put a floor under the market. But historically, those were flipped back into home ownership when it became profitable. And now that we have the single family rental infrastructure that we have, we, we don't see that operating the same way. So we, we want to make sure that homes return to home ownership. We want to make sure we do not see vacancy, abandonment, and blight in our neighborhoods grow again. I'm very, very mindful of that. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's a really interesting potential, there's an interesting piece of legislation that could potentially be included in the emergency response package. Um, It's called the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act, and it would actually be a game changer for trying to prevent single-family vacancy and blight in neighborhoods. Um, What it would do is it would solve the problem that in many neighborhoods where home values are low and are likely to go lower because of this recession, you know, it can often cost more to acquire and rehab a home than you can sell it for. And so the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act actually creates a tax credit to plug that value gap um, and help bring investment into those communities I mean, honestly, I mean, this is something I've been working on for a long time. I never thought we would necessarily have a chance of having something like this get considered um, at this time, and it's it's being considered. So it's really exciting that somebody in Congress is thinking about the health and well-being of these hardest-hit communities, um, you know, while doing this. There's also a proposal out there for Um, money that goes directly to states, kind of like the hardest hit fund uh, from the last crisis that would give states some cash to help um, with all of this foreclosure prevention um, and and loan modification stuff. So there's there's lots of options to make sure that we don't go down the road we went to last time where so many of those foreclosures were utterly unnecessary. You know, it's the worst possible outcome for everyone, for the homeowner, for the investor, and for the the community. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so Julia, the piece of legislation you're referring to in the Senate, who are the sponsors? Sure. Well, so this uh, legislation was introduced in the Senate by Senator Portman and Senator Cardin, and joining as co-sponsors are Senators Coons, Young, Brown, and Scott. So mm. it's a bipartisan bill a introduced group. by a great group of senators. That is, that is. Um, you know, on the House side, this uh, is actually already in the Moving Forward Act, which is the, the infrastructure bill that, that um, the House has worked on. Uh, but it was introduced uh, much earlier by Representatives Higgins and King. So... There is, and I, on the House side now, there are dozens of co-sponsors, again, very bipartisan, lots of agreement that, some, that a tax credit of this nature could do so much to help with home ownership in more distressed neighborhoods and to prevent blight um, and to encourage wealth building both on the part of homeowners themselves and the community as a whole. So I'm pretty excited about it. Wonderful. Those sound like 
we will absolutely uh, dust that bill off. We'll have our GR team take a look at it and reach out to those offices. Thank you for um, for for mentioning that. Um, and so we'll we'll see what we can do to, uh, to help that effort. We could talk for another few hours. I think probably the best thing would be let's we'll hit the pause button here, but then let's reconvene. You know, as summer drags and COVID drags, and we have to keep analyzing this. I mean, I think that it feels like we're in this moment where we put a lot of helpful stopgap measures. They've done some help, but um, certainly not managed to, to be as effective in all communities as they can. So we have plenty more work to do. And I also think the point that, you know, we're operating a little bit under assumption that this thing's, you know, we're in the eighth inning, let's say, but we're probably actually not in the eighth inning. And so the communities that are clinging on by fingernails we got to get after that right now and fix that because this is the moment to really to do that and to be, be thinking about the fact that not only is this health crisis going to probably last a year or so, but um, the impacts and the effects on our society, we don't know how deep and long lasting they're going to be, but they are going to be deep and long lasting. And so this is going to be a challenge for us for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a lot of talk about returning to normal, and I think it's important to emphasize that in many communities, um, the so-called normal is frankly unacceptable. And so what we have here is an opportunity to do better in those communities, not just to return those communities to some kind of version of acceptable that somehow we can all live with. What we want to do is use this opportunity of reflection and of you know, legislation and coming together in a lot of other ways to lift up all communities so everyone can have, you know, safe and uh, productive and attractive places to live and work and enjoy themselves no matter where they are in the country. You know, that really needs to be our goal. Absolutely. It's a, why, why return to normal if normal is unacceptable? I don't, if we're all all hands on deck. Let's fix these problems too, you know? Right. Well, on that note, that's a great note to end. Julia, again, um, thank you very much for the time and thank you for sharing your, your thoughts and your perspectives on this. We're always uh, appreciative. We always benefit from the knowledge that you bring to the table and the perspective that you bring to the table. So we'll keep talking and please stay safe and um, thank you everybody. So that's our show for uh, July 21st, Julia Gordon. And uh, we'll be back shortly. Thank you.